Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coming Together, uh, a series on understanding the social dynamics of Singapore and facilitating uh, dialogue on various topics from current affairs to social norms. This series is in collaboration with the WhiteHatters.sg, uh, a local NGO that seeks to foster greater understanding and integration between uh, the com communities in Singapore. Um, my name is Rindo. And today's topic is about race, about racism, and why it's so hard to talk about in Singapore. Of course, this is a very uh, sensitive topic and oftentimes a controversial one, but uh, we are, of course, committed to um, talking about this with clarity, with nuance, and with fairness. Um, and of course, in light of recent events, it's an important conversation worth having. So as part of this episode, today we are joined by three special guests. Um, one is, of course, Suhail, a fellow collaborator in the project, and he has appeared in previous episodes. So um, Suhail is a freelance writer, former journalist. Um, hello, Suhail. Hi, Rindo. Thank you for having me again. Nice to have you again. Um, we also have um, Shafika Taufik. Um, who is um, a graduate student at the NUS um, in the Department of Malay Studies, whose uh, research interests include socio-religious issues and religious ideologies across the Southeast Asian region. Um, Shafika, hello. Hi, nice to be, to be here. <laughs> and, and hopefully um, that was um, accurate? Yes, okay, yes. Okay, cool. Um, and of course, we have a very special guest, uh, Daniel Goh who is the Associate Professor of Sociology um, at the NUS and has done research on um, race and multiculturalism, post-colonialism, uh, the politics of history and identity, and the cultural politics of global city making. Uh, Daniel, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Um, fun fact, Daniel. Um, my wife took a couple of your classes when she oh. was studying sociology in NUS. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she did say that you were one of the cooler professors. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining um, this, this conversation. Um, so I wanted to, uh, we wanted to cover this topic because in light of recent events over the last couple of years, there has been a growing sense of um, discussions around race and racism. Um, of course, uh, because of social media, we're seeing a lot more of it, both in terms of discussion and of course, in terms of um, incidents of prejudice and I dare say hate. So um, I'm hoping that we can understand like how racism manifests itself in Singapore and not just about like the various incidents which have been talked about at great length over, you know, the last couple of years. But I was hoping we could understand like the boundaries and what are the challenges around talking about race and by extension racism. I have to qualify this by saying that I am a foreigner. Um, and there are a lot of things that I'm perhaps not aware of when it comes to talking about race and racism. So, um, and this is quite important for me to understand. 
um, in the sense that there's many aspects about growing up as a Singaporean or growing up in Singapore that is not visible to me. So I was hoping I could get some insight and, you know, we could talk about this, um, especially um, in a country where there is a significant population of foreigners whose definition of racism may be radically different. So um, perhaps we could just start off with, you know, uh, a, a basic question, like the, the definition of racism in, in Singapore. Like, what does racism mean in the Singaporean context? Maybe Prof can go first <laughs> and then I can... Um... You want me to start with a textbook <laughs> definition? <laughs> yes, the theory, <laughs> the theory of racism. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think I can, I can kind of... Um, use a definition that's uh, that there's two parts right? the, f- the first part is is one in which uh, one in which you you are you're prejudiced against other races even against your own race and that could be considered you know considered and words in in images and, and whatnot right so so that's one form of racism um, but I think a more serious form of racism would be discrimination um, and this this happens when you know, certain actions are taken in, that, that causes disadvantage to another race, uh, that causes harm and hurt. Uh, and not just emotional hurt, hurt and by using words, for example, of images, but hurt in the sense of, you know, actual social, economic and cultural um, detriment, right, to the, to, the, to, to the persons and to the group. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that, Daniel. Uh, well, that's supposed to be a starter for a conversation. Oh, well, a, yeah, no, so I did, <laughs> I, I, I did want to probably like uh, uh, t- talk about this a little more because um, I, I, when I was trying to read about this topic, which admittedly as a layman is quite difficult for me because there's a lot of, um, for the lack of a better word, fancy words that you know it's, mm. uh, I do struggle with. So there is conversations around what makes personal racism and what makes structural racism and, mm. you know, and of course, there is the manifestation of racism, which can, uh, you know, cover the spectrum of uh, casual discrimination to ultra violence. So um, the, the reason why I'm just trying to have a better sense of this is because um, everything that I've been reading about race, racism and racial discrimination is very much in the American context. Not to say that it doesn't inform, um, you know, my worldview and for me to try to apply it here in Singapore, but I often find that there are gaps and I make some logical mistakes by trying to transpose, you know, those definitions and those discussions onto, um, you know, racial issues here in Singapore. So I guess that's why I wanted to ask, like, um, like what makes, you know, how, how do we talk about racism in the Singaporean context? And is there a distinctive identity to the racism in Singapore? I think, as you're sharing, right, uh, Rindo, about the American discourse kind of thing, and as Prof himself was sharing um, about the difference from prejudice to discrimination, which is basically the manifestation of it. Like, there is an outcome, right? Um, one difference that I just thought that's occurred to me is um, the idea of power itself uh, was not expressly stated mm-hmm. by Prof, right, in the idea of... Now, it's implicit there that, of course, discrimination takes on a a much more, I guess, has a greater effect the more power you have. As compared to the American definition that we are seeing now, and perhaps it's a British definition too, where um, power is into, it's a necessary element of the definition of racism. 
And from there, the, uh, the idea comes about that a minority right. cannot be racist. So I think that's something that I did not hear growing up, right, um, mm. in Singapore, where, you know, you could say like a, a minority could be, you know, told, hey, you know, you're being racist by making a joke about the Chinese or, you know, about the Malays if you happen to be Indian. Um, but now, you know, I'm hearing more online in Singapore, like, you know, minorities cannot be racist. And that personally does not sit well with me. Right, um, and I think that's that's perhaps one avenue we can we can explore about how racism we understand it in Singapore might actually be different to the discourse we have. Um, the example that always comes to my mind is okay. So if you have a Chinese chauvinist in Singapore, right, he cannot stand Malays and Indians, right? This hypothetical Chinese man, um, he's a racist in Singapore because he is, you know, he's part of the majority. Um, but if it crosses the border to Malaysia, all of a sudden it's not racist because it's a minority there, you know. Or if he goes, you know, flies takes a flight to Jakarta, he's suddenly not racist. Hmm. Um, I think that's that's where you know. Likewise, you know, a Malay chauvinist from Malaysia just crosses the border, and all of a sudden he's not a racist in Singapore. I think that's where you know uh, the idea of what feels the definition should be um, among many Singaporeans does not quite gel with the more contemporary discourse that's coming in from, from the US. And yeah, so so I, I actually prefer um like like I think that itself unsettles quite a bit of the conversation we could be having in, in Singapore. Yeah. So right. just putting that out there. Yeah. Uh, if I may add, I guess the qualifiers for what racism is in Singapore should be different from America um, or other countries because essentially our histories are all different um, and even though racism can be rooted in history our, our histories are all different so um, for example in America we know the white and black distinction has been there rooted in history for so long where black is not just um, another race but also tied to slavery but in Singapore we have um, it's different right because we have um, three main races for example and then um, all of them has their own stereotypes and these stereotypes have been um it's a discourse that was promoted by the colonials um, and it's sustained until today. Um, so in a sense, like the way we also um, be racist to other people sometimes can be different. We don't look at like skin color per se. Uh, we, don't talk, we don't call like someone being yellow or brown. We just talk about, have, for example, Chinese having certain traits or Indian falling into certain traits or Malays, the same thing as well. So that differ. And therefore, the discourse also and the way we discuss it should differ. Yeah, so that's why I feel. When you mentioned the color thing, right? I'm hearing uh, brown now in Singapore. Yeah, right. Um, we are brown people. Mm, right. That's what happened uh, recently to... Yeah, but yeah, which is yeah. something no, just, new just, uh, actually, because right, yeah. yeah, because I don't think we ever heard of like brownness or like yellowness, because yellowness itself is like a, it's more like an um American construct of a Chinese, but not like a Malay or Indian construct of what a Chinese is. Um, brownness suddenly you know falls like it, it quite it, it subsumes all the minorities like Malays and Indians, and then pitted against the majority. I think that really colors the discussion even more and complicates it. And then it, it really like bring you away from how the history was like. Right. Yeah. So in, in that sense, I guess it's important to see like where this racism comes from and um, discuss it differently. I, I, do, I do see colored um, 
descriptions uh, in the colonial archives. Mm, yeah, in some instances, yeah, So, so, so in yeah, some right. ways, it is a it, it is a it is a Western ideology that that attempts to um, that attempts to whiten the white race even more, right? I mean, I I'm, I, I still recall you know when I was growing up as a as a as a kid. Um, watching, uh, you know, movies about apartheid in South Africa. And there was this film about Steve Pico, uh, a murdered activist, anti-apartheid activist. And he, he, he stood up in court and he said, you know, what, what, makes, uh, what makes me black? I'm not black, I'm actually more brown, right? And what makes you white? You're actually more pink than white, right? So, so, so his argument was that this coloration, right, is itself an ideological construct that was invented by the colonials um, as an attempt to kind of create a particular power play, lah. Right, and and I think to transfer that into Singapore right now is to actually resurrect a certain kind of a colonial ideology, right? Daryl, for example, right, or you know the the brown, the lazy brown man, right, the brown native, and then the 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 the, the, the blacks, you know, and so on and so forth, the uncivilized savage black. So it's a conscious conscious decision to move away from color coding, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah, you you start to talk reduction to skin color is yeah. damn dangerous. Um, Chinese folks will come out, you know, then, then you, you start to have like, you know, uh, want to whiten their skin, for example, right? And, and, and that kind of stuff. I just want to bring in another, another, another yes. um, important writer, Franz Fanon, right? White skin, black mask, right? It, it becomes a, 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 it has a, it's a thing in our skin in those kind of, uh, in, on, on all of us to start looking in that kind of colored terms, yeah. Right. So Daniel, a quick question about, you know, color, skin color. Mm. Um, I mean, of course, when it comes to racism, there's always a discussion about, you know, differentiation by color of skin, but isn't like colorism its own thing? Because um, I mean, for context, like I'm from India and like there is mm. a lot of colorism that happens in the country and, you know, discrimination with respect to it. There's a like uh, the fair skin is seen as an aspirational ideal. And this predates like colonialism. So yeah. um like while we can say that you know the uh, yeah. the racial categorization in Singapore has been a manifestation of you know new imp- like imperialist um, you know uh, ideology so to speak, doesn't colorism also play a part in surface level discrimination? It does. It does. I mean, I think I think colorism is also used for let's mm-hmm. say racial profiling, right? So you you profile somebody based on their skin color, um, so so that happens. But I would I would say that this. Colorism is kind of predominant way to look at people. It's, it's a it's a it's a colonial construct. It very much happened during the the era of Western imperialism right. in the nineteenth century, right? Uh, and and expect much further uh, as a as a you know as a concept in terms of its genealogy. Um, it was uh, it was about biology. It was about you know what where where are the origins of humanity or humankind right and it goes back to the discovery of the americas and the and the meeting of native americans um you know and 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 native people in south america and and what do we do with them are they human you know and these are catholics right or, or christians who encounter them it's like are, are, are these humans or are they are these also children of god or are they not or are they animals and things like that so it is it's, it's race goes back to that particular genealogy and it's not about color skin color it is about biology right it's about the essence of humanity, um, and this is why it, it is it, it can take on it can take sense of humanity, um, and this is why it, it is it, it can take on it can take can take on very complex kind of nuances and arguments, right? And it, it may not be about colorism, but colorism is a simplification and a reduction, and it is it's very may not be about colorism, but colorism is a simplification and a reduction, and it is it's very much you know um, linked to colonial okay. ideology. Yeah. 
Um, so obviously, while the origins of you know uh, race and racial categorization, the, the genealogy, as as you put it, uh, you know, probably goes well before, uh, let's say, the 17th or 16th centuries. I mean, I guess the uh, the modern um, mm. taxonomy of race is now very much around mm. um, uh, looks. Yeah. I would say. And right. culture also, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it has moved on. Uh, it has advanced in a way, where because it's, I guess, it's more taboo now to, to, uh, to malign an entire group based on the color of their skin. So now yeah. they go for cultural deficit mm-hmm. ideas, right? Um, we we, we see, see that we saw that in Singapore uh, during COVID, right? Um, most prominently about uh, with our migrant workers, mm-hmm. when. Uh, I think yes. the Chinese mainstream <laughs> mainstream newspapers, yeah, yeah. right? Talking about you know, yeah, yeah. hygienic and um, all that. Uh, conveniently forgetting yeah. that uh, the vast majority of people who clean right. up Singapore are the migrant workers, yeah. right? Um, and there, there's just something something uh, very very interesting there. Uh, likewise, I mean, even the cultural deficit theories are uh, mm-hmm. with, with the Malay community, right? In in, in Singapore. Um, so these are intimately linked to the older, uh, the genealogy of, you know, yes, of, yes. of the thing. In fact, uh-huh. I think Lee Kuan Yew himself also was a part of that era, right? Yeah. Where, you know, uh, Mahathir, Dr. Mahathir himself was yes. part of that scientific racism yeah. era. Yeah. Where you are biologically inferior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it just manifests itself in different ways now. Right. I mean, there, there was a time when this was considered um, scientific, right? Well, I mean, it's it's still considered scientific now by a lot of people. Um, uh, yeah, you you still get this yeah in sociology and you know the the idea of a cult, uh, culture of poverty, for example, uh, among certain groups of people, get rid of um, you know certain kind of prejudices and 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 and, and biases. Mm. Right. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you mention like uh, uh, the culture of poverty. I mean, I'm I'm just gonna make an assumption here. And, and say that like um, socioeconomic status also plays a big part in how, let's say, different communities are perceived. And over time, over generations, they just become entrenched as like personality traits, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And the personality traits, they are linked to the, the, the so-called particular cultural traits, right? So traditions or whatnot. Um, but I think the, right. the, the, the crucial thing is that, that the critique of these cultural poverty uh, uh, arguments is that, is that, look, you know, that there are structural racisms. And structural racisms, is, is, you, you don't have to really depend on um, actual racial prejudices of actual people. But it's because the social structure is, is, is uh, for historical reasons or for, you know, uh, due to, let's say, um, uh, uh, to traditional kind of job sectors and, and whatnot, and, and the fact that you know migrant people congregate in certain kind of uh, uh, employment sectors and, and, and occupational sectors, it leads to a social structure in which race or ethnic defining um, characteristics that divide the 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 the, the, the social income, uh, you know, social economic income groups. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we see that in Singapore, especially. Um, after independence, right, when we were developing, then we happened to have certain racial groups right. to be very backward. Mm-hmm. But are they backward because they are culturally backward? It's not. It's because of all these um, socioeconomic factors that Prof has mentioned. Yeah. yeah. But then, even if that's the case, um, the racial ideas on these communities still persist. 
uh, until today. And it did shape the policies that we had before that um, to tackle the underdevelopment. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, um, I I can see that actually worsening over the over the next few decades, even if our policies persist. Um, I mean, let's just let's just call it out, lah. The elephant in the room, right? We we are talking about the Malay community specifically, um, and and I I bring that up because a I think I mentioned to Rindo before, perhaps on a previous podcast, about our immigration policies, right? Um, and if you if you compare that with the birth rates. Now I've not done the math. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't do the statistics. I'm, I'm learning, uh, but right now, I mean, we have our birth rates at the various mm-hmm. um, communities, like Indian, the Indian community, the Chinese and the Malay community. Now, the Chinese and the Indians, their birth rates, if I recall correctly, were already below mm-hmm. replacement level from the 1980s, right? Um, and the Malays, I think, it's only recently that it started to dip below replacement level. Mm-hmm. Now, yet. Our population, our resident population in 1990, by recall, was 2.5 million. Right now, our resident population is 4 million, right? And we know that the vast majority of our migrants, uh, new new citizens, are either Indians or Chinese, due to politics, uh, you know, uh, due to you know, historical reasons. So the bulk of the new migrants, new citizens, are Chinese and the Indians who are supplementing that that shortfall. Now, don't forget that the way we select for these citizens are completely based on economic levels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those who are of the lower economic strata, they are our migrant workers. They are barred systematically from ever becoming citizens, yes. right? Um, from procreating, from yeah. setting up a family, um, the short-term two-year thing. So what you have here is a further mm-hmm. entrenching of the socioeconomic status of, of the other, mm-hmm. uh, of the Malays and the Indians, uh, sorry, Chinese and the Indians, right? Um, so... So I think for a long time now, Singapore, we have not been able to talk about the intersection of class and race. Um, it's a very sensitive thing. Um, and, and, and the situation is just getting worse because right now it's becoming even more Malay simply because of the way the policies are, right? At least, at least that's how I'm seeing it in the future. And I think it's, it, it's, it's tragic that we, are not, we still can't talk about it after 40 years of independence. So, so I think that's a, that's a serious issue that you know, no one's raising publicly. In public discourse, I mean, I'm not sure about academia. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie, Sohail. Um, I struggle with understanding intersectionality. Like, it's it's, oh, it's like one of those words that, you know, I think I know what it means, but then, you know, I try to read up on it and then it just gets more complex the more you get into it. So... I think people who talk about intersectionalities <laughs> probably don't understand it either. Um for the longest time, they talk about it as one on top of another, right, and then you have an oppression Olympics about you know I have I'm five minorities, so I'm right, five right, times right. worse than you. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think that's how it works. Yeah. Sorry, Prof. I think I think it'd be best place to explain it. No, I I think the problem with, with intersectionality is that it's been really, you know, discussed and and also talked about, defined in terms of identity, whereas what we are talking about in terms of uh, race and the intersection, right, and it's in, it's, it's it's interaction with with uh, class. We're talking about social structure. We're talking about you know systems and 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 how they privilege or underprivilege certain groups. And and this is this is the this is the interesting part, right? Because the recent discussions about race, really about identity, about casual racism, about symbolic racism, to really identify in terms of what what when we're talking about economic advantage, right, of the of the Chinese, 
what what gives the, 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 the Chinese or the Indians the economic advantage over, let's say, the Malays in Singapore? You know, instead, people are skirting around it. You know, talking about prejudices, uh, which is something that is that, that they can deal with in a very casual way around it, right? And, and, not, and basically avoiding the, the, the issues of structural racism, which I think is the more important issue uh, uh, to, be, to be discussed. I think part of the problem is because the entire discourse is very middle-class driven, isn't it? I mean, when you're economically comfortable, you can only focus on your skin color, right? Um, which is why you didn't hear so much of the noise, or at least I didn't hear much noise about the PMD issue. You know, even though it disproportionately affects the, the Malay community um, when PMD was banned, right? None of the usual um, very vocal race discussions online even, you know, made that connection. So so that's like proof, like, you know, you, you don't want to check your own privilege and class. So I... Yeah. Maybe that's why the, the discussion <laughs> so is progressing. So I have a question there. here. So obviously, Chinese privilege has become quite a loaded term. Um, I think ever since it was first coined way back in 2013, I want to say, um, when Sangeeta Thanapal, I believe, uh, kind of um, used like white privilege as an analogy, you know, to build on top of. So there has been a lot of resistance, uh, and I've had conversations, you know, with my Chinese friends who also struggle with what privilege means. And oftentimes the conversation is like, I don't feel this privilege. So why is this other person screaming at me, asking me to check my privilege? So, and I know these guys, they're not like, you know, bigots or chauvinists, but I think they are struggling with that right. um, in, in their eyes, aggression. Yes. So, um, like why why does there seem to be a resistance to this term Chinese privilege and by extension does this exist? Well, I think part of it is um, okay. There are a few issues here, right? One of it is the whole because I I was I, I remember watching this unfold in real time uh, when Sangita Tanapal was fresh out of NS. Um, then all of a sudden I came across this online sphere of like very a lot of angst and anger uh, about racism, which resonated with me because you know it resonates with my own experiences of racism in Singapore. Uh, but but somehow it was just a bit more. <laughs> For me, it was yeah. toxic, right? Even at that stage, uh, it's it's at some point it is cathartic, but beyond that and it came to a point where even when you bring it up like hey you know what maybe we could be a bit more constructive after we have had our cathartic experience and you get shut down for it um and in that discourse i realized there's a there's a very there's a difficulty in unpacking the universal from the particular right so the universal being like um you know as a group the chinese have advantages that the others don't Right? But people conflate it as if you are personally responsible for the advantages that your group has. And that sort of, you know, it's hard to deal with that because you're saying, wait, I'm, I'm a decent guy, right? Um, what's, no, I'm not a bad person. But because of that conflation there and because that anger also is not, you know, separated, a lot of things are conflated and, you know, emotions get high. And you end up with things like the Tapao Forum where Minister Shanmugam was, no surprise. <laughs> Right, so so I think there's a lot of confusion there on on, on on mainly just the universal and particular, you know, just wet money. Right, and I think privilege as a word has also you know it it means a lot of things, but also like privilege has a 
I mean, it has a regal meaning, right? And so, I, because a lot of folks don't identify with that sense of like almost obvious tangible sense of privilege, they struggle with it. And I think I've seen conversations online where it's like, if only we could replace the word privilege with something like advantage or something like majoritarianism, I think conversation, like, you know, the, they'd say that the conversations would have flown easier. Uh, do you feel that this would be the case if we, you know, called it by any other name? Um, I think calling it by other names can give different nuances. Uh, because privilege, it's it's adopted from the West, right? Um, Western, I mean, white privilege. Um, in America, I think they list down like a few things that can qualify you as having these privileges. But the question is, can we do the same thing here? Because if we can't, then we can't really adopt that to Singapore, right? Because for example, in a white, have you, for example, have you been um, stopped by a petrol police car, uh, those kind of things. But here, it's, it's very different. So we can we can actually talk about some kind of privilege or advantage because in real life, we can see examples, but whether or not it's racism. So we, for example, we want to talk about NS. There are certain vocations in NS that are, um, you know, it's being filled by a certain race as compared to others. The question is, is it because they favor one race or another? Or is it because it's just by merit, it just happened that this group of people happen to be like the best, the top 10, the top, you know, the top 3% of people who can qualify to be in that vocation. So, um, I mean, we do see things so-called like, look seemingly like racism happening or seemingly like privileges happening. But of course, we have to probe further and see what are the logic behind those things. I mean, we, I don't think we can just whack and say that, oh, this is privilege. Because we don't see that, you know, happening in all areas. If we do see that happening in every sector, every areas, workplaces, school, education, and all that, then maybe, yeah. But we don't see that, right? We only see that in certain areas, but not all. I see, I see. Um, having said this, though, and I want to, um, you know, go back to, I mean, there was this um, seminar done by academia.sg, um, early this year. Uh, it was called Regarding Racism. It was a really good um, seminar by a bunch of academicians, one of whom who is Imran Taib. Um, and this was in the aftermath of the, the, the Tanbudli incident. And so I think there was a, con a conversation about, um, you know, talking about racism. And I think one thing that I noted from that discussion was that um, because there hasn't been... Um, a nuanced conversation about mm -hmm. race and racism in Singapore for the longest time, because people need to talk about it, they find a certain uh, resonance with, uh, you know, conversations happening elsewhere. And because America from, you know, the, the very nature of their society, in, in my opinion, I feel it's a very activist driven culture. Uh, and just like India, also, a lot of this activism happens from the ground up, and they kind of invent terms, so to speak, which, you know, the rest of the world then ends up using because um, our own societies haven't, you know, evolved to that point, if, if you will. Evolved is probably not the right word, but, you know, uh, gotten there. So at least from what I'm seeing here, I am sensing a certain discomfort when it comes to talking about race here in Singapore, which is why there seems to be a lot of adoption of, you know, terms that we consider foreign import or whatever. So um, I appreciate that there is now a language to, you know, talk about race, racial discourse, etc. Um, and, and I'm seeing like it goes both ways, right? On the one hand, um, there is 
there are a whole bunch of people who are inspired, you know, by, uh, you know, movements overseas, like, you know, Black Lives Matter comes to mind. Um, and then at, on the other side of the coin, there are people who, um, you know, adopt, um, you know, talking points from the American far right to refute these movements. So it seems to go both ways, right? So every time when I hear conversations about, oh, this is Western ideology, we shouldn't, um, you know, accept it. Um, those folks are inadvertently using, you know, uh, you know, far right ideology, so to speak, to just talk about this. So is there a way for us to talk about racism within the Singapore context that is specific to Singapore so that this question of Western ideology import does not arise at all? I think... Well, um, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the end of the day, um, the problem with the adoption is that, that we shouldn't, we should not be averse to the to the West or to the concepts in the West. We can be inspired by them, but of course, at the end of the day, what matters is localizing it um, and see whether it fits. Um, so, like I think we've mentioned before, this like there's different kind of manifestations of racism and how it has come to this point also differ from other countries to Singapore. So as much as we do adopt like other languages, we also have to look back at why this is happening um, in our own um, country. And I think that's when the discourse should expand um, to talking about, like, partly it's like history also. Some part of it is not being talked about in education. Um, when we talk about colonialism, for example, we talk about how, okay, they get the Chinese and Indians here, and then um, we all have our own roles. But then that itself is racism. And I think we should start from there. Uh, how these um, stereotypes develop is actually from them. And I don't think, I don't recall um, studying about this in school. Um, yeah, so we can start there. I understand the history um, of racism first. And then from there, I guess we can um, see how it has um, manifested in the structures, if there is, you know, in, in today, today's world. So, yeah, we need to do that kind of uh, process rather than just adopting and then applying it here because context definitely differ. Mm. Well, I, I think the problem is that for the longest like, you know, the, the holding line, right, which is the, the multiracialism, right, which is the, the multiracialism, any issue that, that, that was used with regards to racism or, you know, prejudice or discrimination, we settle in the back room. I mean, that's, that, that was essentially the, 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 the scolding that, uh, you know, uh, essentially the MP Mohamed Faisal, um, you know, hey, we, we do this. I think that is backdoor. We don't, we don't bring it out into the open, right? And that has, been the, that has been the norm for the longest time. And, you know, the, the norm is understandable historically and, 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 and which led to the separation, you know, of Singapore from Malaysia as a country. As a, as a, so that is very traumatic, effective trauma. Uh, the collective trauma is tree, right? So, for my generation, always we, we we forget the trauma. But for my parents, their trauma is real. I think I'm, I'm positive about this. We are developing our discourse. We are we are taking what's from the West, what's from Australia, even what's from you know anywhere else, from India or maybe China to painfully, and and that, that that's the reason why some of us started uh, intellectualhistory.sg um, is to try to recover those uh, what. And writings and, and thoughts of our um, voices and, and 
generation and how they talk about our pioneer generation. I think it's important to kind of, you know, they thought about these things. Um, and I and we also add in their voices because they're not around anymore. Wow. Uh, I'm a big fan of memory projects, uh, Daniel. The, the site is called intellectualhistory.sg, yeah? Okay, let me, I'll definitely have a look. Um, mm. Oh, wow. Okay. No, that was actually an interesting viewpoint, I guess. Mm. I mean, quite typical of people in my generation, I guess. I tend to forget the, the voices of the older generation. <laughs> um, but then I... So uh, I think I was uh, so I was watching the uh, the recent uh, talk on today um, uh, tackling racism, um, and I think some of the things that they talk about is that you know there's of course they talk about this divide between um, you know the older generation and the younger generation also, um, and but is this mm-hmm. historical trauma the overarching reason uh, you know f- for for this difference or is there um, I mean, look, uh, and this is probably just anecdotal at this point, but I do find that the older generation tends to lean on stereotypes a little more than, let's say, people my generation. So um, I'm just trying to understand if, like, you know, um, there is a generation issue there, but, Mm. like, is is it an old versus new thing? Because I'm also starting to see that, you know, stereotyping is being applied all across the board, and myself included. I make stereotypical decisions all the time. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I'm just trying to understand if, you know, like, is it really an old versus new thing or yes, is it yes, a problem yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, lazy intellect? Um, yeah. I think the gen- generation do yeah. matter. Um, this is why I see also in my family where the older ones tend to be more um, stereotypical of others. That's right. um, yeah. And we can't invalidate that because yeah. that's probably what they went through. They saw the riots. Um, they also live communally um, and then they develop certain ideas about other people. So for them, um, what stereotypes they think of others is really like true, even though for us it's, it's not, like that's not the case. So um, it can be generational as well because they live communally, but then now uh, our generation, we, we don't, we no longer have, um, what do you call that, like schools, like just like a Malay school and all that, right? Uh, we our schools are more integrated. Our housing is more integrated. So in a sense, you are ex- we are being more exposed um, to seeing different faces every day at least, um, as compared to our, our previ- the previous generation. Yeah. So it can be a generational another, thing. Yeah. Another, just to add on to Shafika's point, I think another generation generational difference that I was only just just realized I was blind to is that my conception of living in Singapore mm-hmm. is defined by Singapore's borders. Right, the current borders, but that was not necessarily the case for you know the older generation. Uh, for one, it was Malayan, right? Uh, it was one contiguous body. I mean, I think it was as Rajaratnam, even like months or years after independence, still thought he was Malayan, no? So, so um, and and that imagination extends to not just Malaya, Malaysia, but also to Indonesia. And I mean, the Chinese, the way they're treated there is is significantly worse, right? And I think that 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 violence that the Chinese community faced. Um, uh, from there, in spite of being there for generations, I think it's part of the cultural memory of the older Chinese, which is totally absent, totally absent from my generation, even the Chinese kids of my generation, right, that are spoken to. So when I hear the anger, um, uh, some of the support forum, like, I mean, we don't know who said what, but like one of the things was like, you know, what if we flex and our majoritarian status, you know, have the minorities thought of that? 
And the moment I heard that, I was thinking, okay, he's not talking about our generation thing. I think it's something else that came came out. He was probably thinking of the wider wider Southeast Asia. And I think a lot of us don't realize that. Definitely not my generation. They also experienced 1964, the riots. Experienced 1964, the riots in Kuala Lumpur. New see. people who were involved in the 1969 riots and during the Suharto um, uh, takeover and so on and so forth. So new people who were involved in the 1969 riots. The thing is, it's more and not to mention the other kind of, you know, other, you know, all these, you're not in Singapore because the, the of there were, there were re and relative networks and, and so and so forth, these groups of people and for that generation, yeah. So sometimes mm. I wonder, you know, like, uh, the, like maybe we don't think, mm. like my sense of the minority community in Singapore is the Malays and the Indians, right? But I imagine someone of the older generation, even though he or she is part of the majority in Singapore, they feel viscerally a minority in the region. So this, there's yeah. a clash of imaginations here right, that you right, just right. have to address. And right. I think that's... Um, and that generation, by the way, they're yeah. still in power, yeah? Um, okay? You are not talking about, uh, you know, retired and, you know, going to die soon kind of thing, to put it very bluntly, right? Yeah, so, so I think that's something that needs to be addressed. And that generation teaches the next generation along the stereotypes and everything. So, so I think that's, that's a critical area we have not addressed in our public discourse. Right. Um, I think there was um, a paper written by, or a book, I think it was written by Stephen Barr. I think that was his name, um, where he talked about how Singapore's multiculturalism is a response um, to, one, the institutional policies in Malaysia vis-a-vis -vis Bumiputra, and of course, you know, the pogroms uh, in, in uh, Indonesia against Chinese people. So um, the multiculturalism in Singapore was the conscious decision to establish a safe haven for everyone and look beyond race simply because, you know, of what was happening in, in the larger region. So um, that was such an interesting take, because for me, I, I guess, you know, coming from where I do, which is... I wouldn't say monocultural, but, you know, in a lot of ways, we do kind of think of ourselves as a single whole versus, let's say, in a multiracial society. Um, so I found that quite interesting. But then I'm also wondering if that definition has outlived its generation, because I think the modern conception of multiculturalism is quite different, I would say. I, I think there are attempts to kind of layer. So so it's, it's kind of Singaporean way of doing things, right? Like our education system, we don't get rid of one thing. We just layer upon it and then the stress just builds up, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 the, yeah, the, so, so at one point, I think the government announced, okay, so we are not quite just multiracial anymore. It's, it's just not CMIO anymore, right? It's not Chinese, Malay, Indian and others. We have a lot of uh, new people coming in, new cultures coming in, new migrants uh, who are becoming Singaporeans. So we have to be more multicultural. Um, so I think it's a layering. Right, so the, the multiracialism is still very much at the bedrock, at the foundation. Um, and then we have that layer of multiculturalism in which you know, we are all called to be more cosmopolitan, to be more outward-looking, more global. Um, but of course, that yes. brings us back to the question of class, right? So who can be a cosmopolitan and yeah. who can afford to be one? Um, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Cosmopolitan thing is a very go chok -tong era kind of course, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. cosmopolitan yeah. versus heartland, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and uh, on that topic, I'm just really curious, uh, you know, about the whole CMIO framework, which is, you know, talked about a lot nowadays, and especially given, uh, and I think in the, the recent talk on racism, there was a conversation about how you now have, you know, double barrel, uh, yeah. you know, racial categories and, you know, a growing population that's just not just Singaporean, but from across the world. So um, is there a need for CMIO anymore? Like, 
can does is, is there a, a how do I put this? Um, can Singapore move towards a post-race society, or does it need to be? Well, uh, I think the better question is whether Singapore wants to. You know, I think I think that's <laughs> a more potent question. Um, it's uh, I mean, so much of Singapore is just structured around CMIO, right? Like everything. You know, your, I mean, just the immigration policy I talked about earlier, right? Um, and even the various shades of Indians that we have in the I category, right? I mean, I'm, uh, there's, so, there's so much tension within the I category um, because you don't just have class, but you also have now caste issues emerging. I'm not Indian. I don't identify as Indian. I'm, I'm Bengali, a Bangladeshi of uh, origin. Um, and But because Bangladesh is um, like overwhelmingly Muslim, so after like many centuries, like the, the caste issue is not as, as strong, right? Um, so it is. It was foreign mm. to me until I spoke to Indian friends uh, who are facing this issue of caste from from newer Indians. Um, the consciousness, right? Uh, it, it, it's not an issue I'm very aware of. But the main point is that this this I category itself, it's it's so varied, right? So so diverse. Yet we still force fit into it. Uh, likewise for the C, the Chinese category, you know. Um, so no, I, I don't think Singapore wants to get past that. It's that's my sense of it. Yeah. By Singapore, I mean I mean the, right. the institutions, right? Um, not I'm not talking about the citizens. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think CMIO manifests in, in our policies so much that it, if we want to do away with it, then what is the way forward? Housing policies, for example, um, if we do away with like CMIO, the question is then how can you ensure that in an estate that you can have different people living together? Uh, because I think that remains important. Yeah, so of course, um, we can always do it away with it, but we have to always think about what's next and how to tackle the same issue in a different way. Yeah. So in that sense, it's difficult. Yeah. Shafika, I think I, I, yeah, I, I, Shafika, I, I, I'm glad you brought up that example because this has been used as an example of structural racism, right? That the, the, the housing, the acting integration policy, because it, it disadvantages the uh, minority sellers. Yeah. Um, but the counter argument is that you know, or actually, a lot of the minorities who apply for certain BTOs in um, um, areas in which the value is much higher will actually get an advantage because they actually allotted, um, you know, a, a certain percentage. But whatever it is, I mean, the, the the issue here is this: we've seen around the world, and there's actually actual studies in Singapore on the Singapore uh, kind of um, uh, resale market that ethnic groups tend to congregate together in the urban areas. They tend to want to buy and live among each other, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's in some ways a social fact, right? That, that has to be, um, you know, further explained, but it is a social fact, right? Uh, and what it means is that ethnic ghettos tend to form if cities are allowed a kind of free market situation. Um, and when that happens, it means that you will have a Malay, more Malay estate, a more Indian estate, a more Chinese estate. And because of the class differences in terms of the wealth uh, distribution, it will mean that the Chinese, the estates that are more Chinese and if, uh, a Chinese enclave, right? And then a Malay enclave. A Chinese enclave will be a lot more expensive and the, the housing value will be a lot higher compared to a Malay enclave. So we're not, not, we're not just going to get 
no the lack of integration in the in the housing sector but we're going to get enclaves in which there will be visible class differences and wealth differences um, and that is a recipe for disaster, in my view, for any kind of, you know, multicultural urban setting. I know? actually tend to agree. I mean, um, like I the EIP is something I generally, like, I, I don't have issues with it in principle, right? Um, although, yes, I do feel that the minorities get the short end of the stick by virtue of the fact that they're smaller group, right? In, 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 in certain ways, because, I mean, the fact that you're 75% of the majority, no matter where you go, you have your own on pay to a certain degree, Right? Um, and like uh, when you do walk around private estates, you see the stark difference. Um, so I, I spent yeah. a part of my youth in Taman Jurong, which is uh, more of a, uh, we were renting there for a while because uh, we were migrants. Um, and the nature in Taman Jurong, uh, which the MP is Taman Shamnogarana, which always makes me laugh. I love it. <laughs> um, uh, he did a lot of good work there, by the way. I really appreciate that. I spent a few years there and then I moved to my current place in Jerome West. So, my family did. And you can see the difference, right? Um, so, I imagine if it's left to the free market, it'll be way worse, way worse, right? And I think you can even, yeah. what little social mobility we have, especially around schools, I think that will drastically change, right? So, yeah. So, that's, that's one of the things where I think um, pragmatism has to rule uh, in that sense. Yeah. I see. Um, I know I can understand the uh, you know the sensibilities of uh, you know having these discussions around uh, you know to, to prevent ghettoization and stuff and of course for the government to be cognizant and understand like the various uh, you know groups and categories but um, on the flip side sometimes I get annoyed like I think this was a couple of years ago um, I was signing up for McDelivery on McDonald's. And then, you know, they ask for a name, surname, and then my race, which is a mandatory field. So I'm like, <laughs> how is that important yeah, yeah. to me ordering a burger? You know? right, right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, of course, I, I did reach out to them. You know, I sent feedback to them saying that, hey, is this important? And then, of course, uh, the response was that, oh, sorry about that. It was because it was like inherited from a paper form, you know, from back then. Yeah. And yeah. so it kind of, to me, highlighted the fact that, oh. Right. So race has become such a key part of literally everything that it's just a normal question to ask, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, right? We racialize issues that yeah. don't necessarily... I think sometimes the race lens yeah. itself blinds us to a lot of other things. Yeah, it's, okay. it's also a kind of bureaucratic habit to kind of collect uh, such information, which is pointless. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so so I, I work in IT, and so I think, you know, we have been very conscious of, you know, a personal data protection and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. since 2013 and stuff. So I think I have seen a positive change in that only data that is relevant to the service right. that's, you know, being uh, provided is being asked nowadays. So I think that's a that's a good change in my opinion. Not because of the race thing, but more from a, you know, I only want to give you information that is relevant for you to give me, you know, mm. uh, provide me mm. the service. So, um, so it is changing. So that's good. Um, and so, and I, I think this is an interesting, uh, you know, topic to explore a little more on because this is about the contemporary discussions on on race. So obviously, the the, uh, the ethnic integration policy highlights the need for a government to understand racial categories and understand you know these class and race differences so that they can make better decisions. But how would it work um, on on the ground level? So um, I often struggle with talking about race, you know, with friends, with acquaintances, um, and. You know, I, I do feel like there has to be a way for us to talk about race 
uh, and racial issues effectively and without, you know, inviting anger or aggression or, you know, d being defensive, etc. So the question is uh, how we can talk better about it or? Yeah, like, I mean, are, are there ways for, you know, the average layperson like myself to, you know, talk about race in a way that doesn't make the other person feel defensive? Well, make sure you're good friends first. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think everyone has a uh, part to play. Um, we don't have to have big dreams of changing uh, the situation. But I, for me, I think we can always start small with our own family members. Um, I think instances of racism or just like saying certain things about others is quite common uh, even within my family so when I hear that I would just call them out saying like no that's not the case like come on you're being racist don't do that you know <laughs> those kind of things um, and 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 I think we do have to have difficult conversations uh, with some people that like, don't shine away from the topic at all like do talk about it uh, you know about racism um, if someone is really curious for example about you and your race be open and talk about it um don't don't be defensive. I mean, because so someone's concern, even though it might seem a bit seem a bit racist, can be like a valid concern to them. Yeah. So for example, um, when you want to ask about, oh, why do Malays do this or Malays do that? Um, don't be defensive. Just like tell them about it. You know, like enlighten them. Yeah. I think the the, the most important part is like when you see someone be racist just call them out but of course when you call them out also um, firstly be kind especially when they are like your family or friends um, don't don't just jump and be that you know um, don't give all the angst that you have uh, yeah just call them just talk to them about it nicely yeah that's for me it's like the, the, the smallest thing you can do as a person on the ground yeah. Um. Today, of course, if you see things like this in public, the easiest thing people do is calling out via videos, right? Um. On one hand, I feel it's necessary, but on the other hand, also sometimes it's unnecessary. If you can just go to the person and say something, you just do do that. You don't have to record and then viral the person and then like you know make the person after that feel bad. We also don't want to be um tackle racism with something that's very harsh and worse tackle racism with racism. You know, which I think is also common these days. Yeah. 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 I, I think I think racism is a, is is fundamentally an idea, right? It's it's, it's a very bad idea. Um, it comes from a bad idea about about race and their and their and their essence and their and their stereotypes. So I think we should fight um, bad ideas with good ideas, and don't get too personal and attack the person. Um, and I think that's 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 the that's the good faith that we should enter into in any conversation. I, I remember when I when I came back from finishing up my PhD and coming back to NUS to teach in two thousand and six, uh, I, I started teaching race and and, and and ethnic relations, the module on race and ethnic relations, and it was so dangerous, you know, because everyone was like saying, "Oh, it's a sensitive topic. You better be careful." Um, I went into class with 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 all my you know newfangled post-colonial theory and so on and so forth and I was trying to deconstruct all the different stereotypes and people were getting very uncomfortable but I told them look we're going to enter into this module with good faith that we are going to discuss difficult questions in a safe and secure environment and we do not accuse anyone of being racist right but we attack the ideas 
And if the ideas are racist, we, we unpack the ideas and we'll be ready to get to, to remove those ideas if we, if we believe that they are bad and they are, they are racist. I think that's, that's the key thing, to, to kind of uh, separate the ideas from the person um, so that we can tackle and, and, and educate. And I think that's, that's, that's really important. Yeah. yeah, I think what Prof said was important, which is um, safe space. <laughs> we need to have a safe space to talk about things. Um, some people, I feel you don't have to engage with them um, when they are very adamant and conscious about being racist. Yeah, but true. other people, um, we can engage with them, but we also need safe space. We all have ideas okay. about other people. Uh, we have to acknowledge that we can, we also can be racist, but then we also need a space where we can trust others and just talk about it because essentially that doesn't represent us. It represents um, what we have grow up, grown up with and ideas that we have... Um, probably taken or influenced by other people. Yeah. I think the other challenge I've had with talking about race, um, I think a lot of times we have flattened people, uh, people's identities. What do I mean by that? For example, when someone says something racist, that's all we focus on, we, we, which is understandable, right? You tend, but you tend to forget that, you know, that person is not just someone with just racist ideas, right? That person is a lot more complex than that. Um, and it's something, it's an idea that I, I guess quite a few people may not agree with, or to use that language, you know, um, if you feel like a certain race is your oppressor, something I don't agree with, but let's say you feel that way, then humanize your oppressor. If not, you can't move forward with that, right? I mean, for example, right, you can have a very loving father, like he'll, he'll die for his daughter, he'll go for torture, you know, like he'll go through hell for his daughter, but at the same time, he can still be a misogynist, right? But that does not negate his love for the daughter. So how do you unpack things like that? Likewise, if you know, if my friend, you know, has some race, very racist ideas, but for some reason, because we are friends, I am that one asterisk, like, oh, you know, this guy is fine, right? But all the others in his race are like that. I think that's an opportunity to talk, like, you know, you know that the person at heart is decent. So like Prof said, you deal with the idea. Uh, on the flip side, on the flip side, I've I've realized that, um, or at least that's my interpretation. One of it is that I think the idea of being multiracial uh, or being commitment to committed to racial harmony has sort of become part of the Singapore identity. And because the majority do not face racism in Singapore, generally speaking, right? Uh, isolated incidences aside, like let's say if you're the only <laughs> Chinese kid in the Malay soccer team, those anomalies aside, right? Um, because they have not faced racism, the idea of Singapore being multiracial, I, I'm seeing is part of their identity. So when you say that there is racism in Singapore, right. it's, it's not just an idea. It's they feel attacked at their identity. Their Singaporeanness is at stake, right? And they don't realize it and we don't realize it when we talk about it. So I think that's something that needs to be unpacked also mm -hmm. and it's not being uh, talked about in our discussions uh, because we don't, we don't see it. Plus, I mean, the Singapore identity is, is still forming. It's very, it's very amorphous and you know, it's not settled yet. But multiracialism, meritocracy, you know, these are central to it. And race discourse tackles both, like right. it's central to both, right? Meritocracy is not always meritocratic yeah. for the Malay kid or the Indian kid, right? You know, but multiracialism is not just, it's not really multiracialism for the, for the kid who faces racism. So there is a contrasting, like, you know, understanding of what Singaporean means. And this identity thing needs to be addressed. Um, but it's hard, right? So just, just mm -hmm. recognize that the other person is human. 
Plus, like Shafika said, you also got to pick your battles, uh, you know. <laughs> that up and down the road voice, you know, calls you a punde every time you walk around. Yeah, and, yeah, okay, yeah, fine, yeah. you know, like, right. let the man have his scope. You know, just, he's not going to get up, yeah. you know, he's mm. not pulling around, just leave him be, yeah. you know, you don't need to, you know, pull him up. <laughs> he's not, he's not, he's not in, a, in a situation of power. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Make sure he don't become a citizen. Yeah, that's why he's not in a situation of power. Yes, exactly, right? So, so you know, if he's just there, he's like, okay, let him be, you know. That kind of thing. Interesting. I mean, I, w- I will be honest. I think I struggle with this mostly because, once again, you know, foreigners, though I am, a lot of this was invisible to me. But simply by nature of being Indian, in a lot of contexts, I am kind of, you know, at least presumed to be part of the lo- local minority until I open my mouth, of course. So, um, in many situations, of course, I'm having a ch- chat with the taxi uncle, for example, you know, and then he would chat. And then, of course, there would be the inevitable, you know, statement, uh, I'm not racist, but... And so, just like you said, you know, you pick your battles, and I'm I'm generally quite, you know, forgiving of this kind of situation. But when it happens time and again, I think, like, stress builds up. And I'm like, okay, I know, as Shafika pointed out, there must be a way to call this out. But I'm also conscious of the fact that, um, you know, there'll be stress and energy expended in trying to deal with this. And I'm not sure if it will be productive at the end of it. Because I'm not sure if that guy is going to walk away from this conversation saying that, oh, he's right. I should change my ways. So, and in a lot of ways, this kind of criticism also, you know, faces a resistance from a lot of folks because it is like, you know, like uh, um, Suhail was saying, it's like an attack on your identity or even on a higher level attack on your intellect and the power of reasoning, right? Because if somebody says that you're wrong, what that other person is essentially saying is that my way of logically looking at the world is somehow wrong, which is absolutely not true. So you kind of double down. So, and that's why I feel like, you know, discussions about racism, I avoid completely. It's like when I hear this, I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know, just I sometimes I've also been guilty of just kind of silently acquiescing to it. Like, so I just like silently agree just so that the conversation can be done and we can move on to other things. So I do realize that I shouldn't do this, but it can be super difficult to call out such instances. I think that's um, part of the difficulty in calling out also is language. Um a lot of our understanding, or at least me and my friends' understanding mm-hmm. of race, and you see that in the discourse online, it's, it hinges a lot on the academic language. Uh, you know, I mean, the concept, Chinese privilege, right? Yeah. It's an academic, was an, uh, well, privilege is an academic term, right? Um, so things like that, there's quite a bit of translation that's required to make it into laypersons. But that itself requires intellectual work. You know, which uh, which itself is another level of like you know altogether. So so I think that's also part of the problem. Um, and also, uh, especially if you're a minority, you have your all these angsty feelings from you know you've suppressed it for don't know how many years, and then sometimes that just bubbles to the surface. It gets triggered, right? So we got to exercise our own demons also before we can engage in, it, especially in public discourse, right? So I think that's the other other element there. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because I I struggle with like trying to read all this and understand these terms and I wish there were a simpler way. Um, And I can see why, um, you know, thinking along stereotypes is Mm -hmm. easier because it's, I don't know, I I guess stereotypes have a way of expressing Mm -hmm. themselves in simple terms and, you know, you find yourself just 
falling into the easier way of describing things you know it's like uh, it makes sense of the world in just three sentences versus you know something like uh talking about racial discourse which has <laughs> that's yeah. how our brains are wired right? it's a survival like, thing I, I wish there you was know? a simple like don't walk down the dark alley that's the stereotype yeah, yeah. right don't walk down the dark alley because <laughs> that guy is bigger than you you know he may be like you know the sweetest person ever but you know your, your instincts go on and maybe not yeah. maybe not tonight yeah. i'll try it on that day so so a part of it is is really you know trying to go against human nature i mean nature. i just wish at the end of all of this there was a simpler way to describe intersectionality i still i'm not sure i got it <laughs> so um but uh, that aside um yeah i think uh you know i i do feel uh, i do feel like we have covered a fair bit of ground um especially around the discussion of racism which i feel is very important um like is there anything that uh, you all would like to add um you know perhaps something that we may have missed out on or something that's worth um you know talking about yeah i i think for me um it's about how do you tackle racism altogether i think as we mentioned really like on one hand is to discuss about it acknowledging it happened and that we are also racist and then um, yeah have like safe spaces to discuss these matters but I don't think that is sufficient of course you need to have other calls of actions as well um, I think sometimes if we segregate ourselves too much according to our racial categories that can be very constricting um, and we might overlook issues that all of us might have faced right together so um i think one way to conduct um discussions is to just have a topic that that we all probably uh resonate with together so um so for example if for example we even talk about mental health i'm sure everyone also faces mental health issues um and from there in, we can create new out groups and in groups as compared to just like racial categories because I'm sure a person like my age doing, for example, masters or from a different race will have similar concerns um, as compared to just me and being a Malay with someone else. Yeah, so I think these are the kind of uh, thing, um, discussions that need to take place, not just um, you know by NGOs, but I think in schools also, like racial harmony, they can be expanded to having these kind of conversations in class rather than just like wearing each other's uh, costumes. Right, uh, which I think is missing totally in the discourse, lah. Um, yeah, and extend it to workplaces as well because I'm sure there are many uh, instances of people like talk, saying how like the bosses favor certain races and all that. Um, this also should be included in workspaces, uh, but of course, like it does, it needs like um, it needs something to be initiated by probably the government when it comes to workspaces because you can't just have like someone among the colleagues to have it. Sometimes it can be difficult, right? Because of the power as well. Yeah, so this kind of discussion must take place not just like in one session, so just one conference about social cohesion. It's very superficial. So we have to have these discussions like quite uh, more frequently as well. Yeah, so on one hand, talk about the racism issue, but on the other hand, also talk about the similarities and concerns that we all face together. I think um, I'll add two things. Thanks, Erika. One of it is, I think our discussion is to move beyond lived experiences. Uh, right now, it's, you know, it's, it's been poked <laughs> for years, man. It's been too long. Okay, la, get it. La. You know, every, every other motherfucker got a story. La. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be... I don't mean to be vulgar, but, you know... <laughs> no worries, life, no worries. Um, Which is not to invalidate the yeah, real right. experiences, but I'm saying we got to move beyond that, right? 
like that's the first step. It's an important step, right? It's it's uh it's critical, but we have to move beyond that, which means making sense of it, right? Uh, which means also doing work internally, not just externally, um, at a personal level. That's that's uh one. The other thing I want to talk about is um. I think um, I think Prof alluded to it earlier when you're saying that discourse is happening right now, it's developing, and and I think that's great, right? And just one one um, warning, I guess, or, or something I'm a bit wary about. Our entire discourse on race is a bit too captive to the West, um, specifically American discourse, because of various reasons: cultural hegemony, whatever you want to talk about, social media, language of social media, right? Um, specifically, the English one. Our discussions in Malay are more influenced by the North, right? Uh, online Malay's, Malay uh, media. Um, and the discussions right. they have are separate, right? Right. And okay. you don't see any of the race activists talking about race issues in Malay, right? At least not that I've heard of, right? Um, oh. Likewise for, for the vernacular languages or in the Indian languages, right? Uh, Mandarin was only recently because, you know, they were at the Chinese privilege, it was the heart of it. Um, so there are actually three different discourses happening, yeah, or three different uh, discursive spaces, right? Um, the Chinese one is very influenced by China, right? Um, which is why the very anti-Western, anti-American U.S. media nonsense, um, it is there, right? So the Mandarin speaks. So we have like three different dis discursive spheres, and I have only access to one, English, because you know I'm, I'm not fluent in, in Mandarin or, or or any of the Malay languages, Malay language or, or the Indian languages in Singapore. So that's the other thing. But the English one is very very captive to the West. Oh. What do I mean by that, right? Um, it's, but captive is actually, uh, uh, I'm, I'm so prof and uh, Shafika knows. Window, the, I'm referring to specifically the, uh, this concept by Prof Syed Hussein Alatas, right? He was uh, one of our preeminent scholars. He was the founder of the Malay Studies uh, Department in NUS. Uh, it's a legendary figure in, in the scene. Ah, uh, Shafika's department, right? She's a new studies yeah. So he talks yeah. about a captive mind where people, are, uh, I'll send the paper to you, is basically you are, your entire mind is just, you know, captured by these ideas and you're not even aware of it, right? It's like fish in water, you don't know there's water. So a lot of times when you talk about it, we are just responding right. to debates happening overseas and trying to transpose it here, which is the problem of contextualization that Shafika was talking about. Um, there's the English discourse, right? Now, the Mandarin discourse is captive more to China. So whatever racial language we have, um, language talk about race that comes from English will necessarily be challenged by the one that's, you know, coming in from China because there's a global geopolitical thing at play, right? Which is why you have this Jewish right. conversation and the Chinese community itself is so diverse because you have the Chinese speaking ones and then you have the anglicized ones, a lot of whom are influenced by the churches in the, in the U.S., so it's a whole mess, right? Um, and there's a lot of conflicting issues here. So you got to be very aware of, you know, why where these discussions are coming from. Um, I've not come across any research that's, mm -hmm. you know, untangling it yet. But you know, it's just it's just something yeah. that we're only now recognizing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and that that would be a great framework to kind of you know talk about Chinese privilege and the and the and the and the lack of understanding right between like the Zhao Bao group right and the and the whole Mandarin speaking group and the and the English speaking yeah yeah so 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 that is that is the context uh, that you have a you have a master's thesis right there so I'm <laughs> you have a master's thesis right there to, to talk about come on so high and to and to understand like the PM's you know speech about oh there's no Chinese privilege in the National Day right, right? So the fact yeah. that he can make such a claim right you know in a very confident way. Yeah, and to understand that. 
and I, I guess for my for me the, the the last word I want to kind of add in is is, is that you know we, we used to we, we used to emphasize the, the, the issue of tolerance right we, the, the, the culture of tolerance we, we tolerate each other you know uh, we may not understand but we tolerate um, and there, there was I think some attempts to kind of move to more intercultural understanding of each other and so forth but you know that is not going to be possible for everybody um, and I think ultimately one comes down to a phrase that I kind of like because it's, it's, it's starting to appear a lot in institutional contexts like NUS um, because of the whole sexual misconduct issue it's, it's the culture of respect you know, we have to have respect for each other, uh, and, th and this can be also transposed. I think from you know the, the the issue of like you know the gender relations and and, and whatnot into into the, in the questions of you know racial rela relations, um, a culture of respect in which we respect each other's um, space and 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 and, and views, um, and to to be able to create those kind of safe spaces where we can talk, you know, and and, and deconstruct some of these uh, more pernicious kind of you know race, racist stereotypes that can lead to you know uh, detrimental kind of the discrimination yeah so um on, on that note um you know thank you so much shafika thank you so much Sohail, and thank you so much uh, daniel for being part of this um i i and hopefully everyone else who's listening to this podcast will possibly have a better understanding of how to talk about racism and how to just understand it on a more you know uh just try to figure it out in in a better way than resorting to um, social media rhetoric, which is uh, often you know uh, simplified and polarizing. So um, I think the a good start would be to have a little more you know a, a reasoned uh, understanding of the situation. So um, yeah, so on that note, I hope everybody enjoyed listening to this episode. If you have any feedback, please uh, you know reach out to me on socials or you know, just, just send an email or on any of the social media pages. Um, and yeah, on, on that note, um, I would like to say goodbye. And once again, thank every one of the guests here. Daniel, Suhail, Shafika, absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And thank you for having us as well. Thank you for having me. It's a great conversation I had. And, and for the rest of you listening, um, you know, this was coming together. See ya. See ya.